Hello and welcome back to Extrapolator with Jeff Allen. Welcome to the religion episode. Originally, I did not plan to spend a full episode talking about religion. I wasn't exactly avoiding it, but I was conscious of the fact that it's well-trodden ground. The debates have been raging on in circles, and maybe people aren't that bothered with more of the same. But then, I sat down to write a one-minute segue about morality, and it all just snowballed. I remembered that I really have a lot to say about this topic, and... I think I can provide some original perspectives. As always, I approach these topics through the lens of my three philosophical functions, as I outlined in the first episode. You might remember that these three functions are procedural, as in meta-analysis, the global view, the systematic view. Mapping, as in sketching the positions, linking the implications and evaluating. And thirdly, substantive as in extrapolating, reasoning to inferences and to implications. I also have a very particular approach to the topic of religion, and to all philosophical topics. In every case, I strive to find a naturalistic explanation. Our explanation must be strictly consistent with our best scientific theories and with the rest of our physicalist worldview. So, our explanation must appeal only to descriptions licensed by a naturalistic worldview, and not to the non-physical and the supernatural, not to anything fishy or spooky. Just as in the last episode I asked what is the source of meaning, you know, where does it reside, I believe that getting to the bottom of many philosophical puzzles involves locating them in terms of their ontology. The flow of time, the human self, where does it reside? As far back as episode 2, I talked about the category errors that people commonly make when they're deciding what is true or what exists. There is a tendency to assume that the US dollar is something objective, whereas it is actually something constructed. And there is a tendency to see electrons as something constructed by human science, whereas they are in fact objective. Sorting out these category errors, identifying what exists and where a phenomenon resides, this has been the name of the game since the start of this podcast. And that's the analysis that I'm bringing to the topic of religion. I think that we can make great insights on religion by taking the extrapolator approach. And I hope this approach feels routine to everyone who's been listening to the podcast up to now. I also have a long personal history with this topic. As in, I've been plagued by internal debates and dilemmas since the age of 12 or 13. And I've experienced a handful of conversions and unconversions and reconversions, all brought on by the progress of my internal debates. And of course, by some teachers pointing me in one direction or the other. From the ages of 13 to 20, I obsessed over the question, does God exist? And my deliberations were so active that new arguments or new insights would lead me to change to one paradigm of belief for a year or so. And then I would be confronted with another twist, and the paradigm would shift again. 
I'll give you a very rough timeline of my religious persuasions. Age 12. Uncritical Catholic or Christian. I had learned about God and the Bible at Catholic primary school. My parents were not strong believers, bordering on agnosticism or, more precisely, apathy, but my grandparents were and are strong believers. So it was belief by upbringing. Age 14. Uncritical atheist. I underwent a 180 degree conversion when a teacher in school said that religion was like a fairy tale, which I thought was amusing. Of course, in the years that followed, I became a somewhat more nuanced atheist, and I did form other arguments that were more coherent than just the fairy tale dig. But another conversion was still on the cards. Age 17. Once again, a belief in God, but from a very metaphorical angle. This was inspired by one teacher, a priest if you'll believe it, who was fond of saying, God is love, and anyone who lives in love lives in God, and God lives in him or her. And that seemed fairly easy to get behind. I was inspired by books about a metaphorical higher power. I read The Alchemist by Paolo Coelho, which inspires reverence for the mysterious grand plan of the universe and the soul of the world. I read Life of Pi by Jan Martel. The protagonist, Pi, seeks to find universal truths in a great many religions, and there are similar grand themes of faith and fate and the mysterious machinations of the universe. This was a more dangerous type of religious persuasion in hindsight since it was very loose and woolly. There was no central doctrine, so it very easily morphed, and it was very hard to explicitly refute. I suppose the central idea was something like, there is more to existence than just the physical world. A spooky idea, perhaps. It was the idea that non-physical forces affect our lives, and higher powers exist, outside the reach or control of human beings. But what kind of claim is this? What would evidence of this even look like? The only thing that people cite when they're talking about this mysterious higher power is a feeling. As in, you know that feeling you get when... How can you explain that? Well, after all, feelings are neurochemical events in the body. And I wouldn't rely on something that biological and terrestrial as evidence for things that are non-biological and non-terrestrial. A lot of the motivation also comes from art and literature. And for sure, books like Life of Pi and The Alchemist inspire great excitement for an overarching destiny which synchronizes the swaying of the universe. The plots in these novels certainly made the hair stand up on the back of my neck. But is that proof of anything? When a reader gets that tingling feeling, is that caused by God? Or caused by the Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist? Do not underestimate the power of the novelist. Stories have an incredibly powerful effect on human imagination and human belief we are very significantly swept away by stories every day, for better or for worse. My bubble was burst 
magnificently when I was about 18. A friend challenged my loose idea of universal love by saying, okay, but like, whatever this thing is, this higher power or flow of energy, it's definitely not the Christian God. So can you do us all a favor and stop associating with Christian believers? Because you're licensing all their homophobia and other wacky beliefs by adding bodies to their crowd. He was perfectly right, of course. This actually revealed my desperation to rationalize God in some way. I had become a pretty dogmatic apologist for the idea of God. I was rationalizing it in terms of some feeling or some sense of a higher force, or as the mere existence of love, which, by the way, is a very terrestrial adaptation between social mammals. But anyway, my friend only wanted me to disassociate with Christians, and then to continue on my new agey path towards unity and crystals and who knows what else. I shudder at the thought. But he had the unintended effect of bursting my bubble. Once I realised that this was all a grand act of rationalisation, I started to reel everything back. Age 20. At this point, I was two years into university philosophy, and my habits of reasoning were all the better for it. I truly believe, above all else, that philosophy teaches you how to think. It might be a cliché, but even if you forget all of the content, you know, debates about truth or freedom or consciousness, at the end of the day, you have a toolkit, a mode of reasoning. I had started to knit together all of my positions to form a consistent program or worldview and to extrapolate to the most plausible implications. The beliefs that I'd started to form then are the same ones that I hold now, at the age of 25. And I'll reveal what those beliefs are in due course. The fact that I'm highlighting this long, fun and tortured process is not to support the fact that changes of heart are likely, and therefore don't be certain of anything because you're likely to change your mind. Rather, it's to say that I've already been around the bend and back. I've thought it through from so many angles, often more than once, and the beliefs that I now hold are not merely whims. They're very far from whims, because they've been interrogated at length, and, of course, they remain open to interrogation. The overall goal is to reach a position of plausible surety, to get as close to the mark as possible. When we employ the three functions of philosophy, procedural, mapping and substantive, we aim to reach a place, a location in the space of beliefs, that is coherent from a meta position, that is consistent with respect to all other beliefs and the wider naturalistic worldview, and that has regard to the best available evidence, formed through careful extrapolation. So there's the preamble for why we find ourselves here at the religion episode. That was the reason why I believe that I have something useful to say, or the reason why it's worth listening. As we go forward, I'm sure that I will end up offending someone. It's almost inevitable. But I really want to stress that I'm genuinely not trying to cause offence. And I have two pieces of testimony to this point. First, 
I, of course, suffer from the same heuristics as the next person, in that I believe that my views and outlooks are the ones that are correct, and it is the views of other groups and individuals that need to be adjusted or modified or corrected. So this is a profession of my own true and honest convictions. Well, for want of a better term. That sounds a bit overly religious, perhaps. Though the difference may be that I appeal to evidence. Well, more on that later. Second, I really and truly believe that my outlook is more humanistic than any religion. I think that an honest appreciation of the cold facts of reality and a rejection of all supernatural biases leads to a more inclusive moral code for humans and non-human animals, leads to a more robust and egalitarian human rights, and leads to a more accurate and substantiated picture of how reality is truly composed. So, let's get into it. Throughout this series, I've talked a lot about how reality is composed. I think these insights are some of the most important contributions philosophy can make towards our knowledge and understanding of the world. As always, I challenge you to ask the question, in what way does it exist? Where is it located? Where does it reside? We must sort out what is objective and what is subjective what is independent of minds, and what is not. We've already done this with meaning, concepts, the flow of time, and the human self. And earlier with electrons, climate change, and inauguration crowds. To properly assess the ontology of a religious belief, to assess in what way it exists, we must talk about the notion of human narrative. I view narrative as its own category of being. By narrative, I mean stories and fictions that we share in human culture and society. Stories are not always fairy tales or Pulitzer Prize-winning novels designed as entertainment or artistic expression or whatever. There are also stories and fictions underpinning our economies, our countries, our currencies and our religions. And narrative is any kind of human construct, a story or a fiction that we tell ourselves or tell to each other. And some of these fictions, like national myths, underpin constitutions and governments, and they give supposed legitimacy to our institutions. So what is the ontology of a narrative? Where does it reside? Or in what way does it exist? Well, it's certainly not objective, a narrative is a construct by definition, so it's not part of mind-independent reality. It is constructed by human minds, and it does not exist outside of human minds. But it is also not subjective. Its existence is not limited to one mind, like my subjective preference for the colour orange, or my subjective belief that the moon is made of cheese. Let's consider some widespread human fictions. Narratives about economies, countries, currencies, and religions. These amount to shared beliefs in the Euro, the country Sweden, the Dutch economy, and the Christian God. These narratives do not exist objectively nor subjectively, but rather intersubjectively. 
intersubjective entities are still not independent of minds, they do not exist out there, beyond human culture or human imagination, and yet they are shared between many minds, hence intersubjective. I'm sure your 13-year-old cousin, who has just started high school economics, would be the first to remind you that money isn't real, you know, it's all imaginary. This is a direct quote from Jonah Bird in season 3 of Ozark, and it always sounds amusing and precocious when it comes out of a young person's mouth. Money isn't real, you know, it's all imaginary. As much as we know that money is imaginary, we also forget about it just as quickly and go back to tapping our cards to pay for lattes and trampolines. It is more convenient to treat money as something that exists outside of minds rather than inside of minds. But don't forget that all-important question. In what way does it exist? In the spirit of naturalizing, we should feel compelled to give a naturalistic account of narratives. What is the function of a human narrative from a scientific or evolutionary or physicalist perspective? Brian Boyd considers this exact question and characterizes human fiction as an evolutionary adaptation. Human stories have biologically adaptive functions. They enhance cooperation and improve social cohesion. And this explanation extends equally to religion. From an evolutionary perspective, religion is just one type of human fiction, one subcategory of this adaptation for social cohesion. And like any biological adaptation, it must make a difference in terms of human survival and reproduction. And religion indeed offers these benefits. Explanation, cohesion, conformity and control, as Boyd puts it. Religious beliefs do not need to be true for us to enjoy these benefits. A fictional belief or a falsehood can still be beneficial, provided it motivates, quote, behaviours that are adaptive in the real world, end quote. So it doesn't matter whether religions refer to anything real, like gods or sins or afterlives. It only matters whether these stories make a concrete difference to human lives in the real world, making humans more likely to cooperate or survive. Yuval Noah Harari is particularly fond of this line of reasoning, that religions are just another type of human fiction, in the same category as currencies, economies and countries. The benefit of any of these narratives is that they enable humans to cooperate on an immense scale. Without these narratives, we would be limited to a maximum size of 200 individuals per group, and other primates, like chimpanzees for instance, are limited to a much smaller group size, since this is the limit for concrete bases of trust. With a group of this limited size, each individual can maintain a personal relationship with other individuals, enabling them to trust one another as they share food and live side by side. Humans, however, can live in vast numbers because we have abstract bases for trust. We trust those who are ostensibly strangers because they share our narratives and fictions, currencies, economies, countries and gods. And arguably, religion was the most successful story of all, 
uniting literally a billion people under the belief of a common project, a religious mission to live a certain way and to follow certain rules and to receive supernatural rewards. Religion has been so successful at forming coalitions that it fostered destructive violence between coalitions. There is nothing like the feeling of belonging, a feeling of a closely knit in-group, to promote violent hatred of others, of the out-group. And I'll be the first to say that we don't need these religious stories anymore. There are other, far better stories out there, ones that unite humans under a message of shared humanity, a true, factual statement of our common purpose as members of the same genetic species, as opposed to some non-factual message about supernatural rules and supernatural punishments. And I don't believe that this story should be limited to just one species. Ideally, the story should be a statement of common purpose as members of Earth's ecosystem, which extends moral protection to other facets of that ecosystem. That is our only chance for protecting other animal species and the climate. When we construct group myths that underpin our ethical systems, we should be anxious to include other species and the wider ecosystem in our narrative of moral protections. As a teeny postscript to the last episode on the source of meaning, I want to mention meaning in the context of narratives. I insisted that meaning is a frame-dependent phenomenon, since the frame of each organism is different. These unique frames arise from differences in sensory motor systems, and each organism constructs the world in its own way, on the basis of these differences. With a little extrapolation, we can suppose that meaning is subjective and frame-dependent, and that reality itself, outside of any frame, is inherently meaningless. This conclusion stands, but I want to somewhat widen the scope. When we say that meaning is frame-dependent, it might be either subjective or intersubjective. When it comes to frames of reference, there exist both individual frames and shared frames. Shared frames can arise through these shared human stories, these narratives that exist in many human minds in the form of shared beliefs. So this accounts for shared meaning arising from shared stories. Intersubjective meaning and subjective meaning are both equally mind-dependent and both equally frame-dependent. Reality is still inherently meaningless, and any meaning is constructed within a certain frame, whether individual frames or shared frames. Religion is one such shared meaning. We construct it jointly on an intersubjective basis. Religions are human narratives, just like currencies, economies, and countries. This is revealed when we step back and characterize religious beliefs from an evolutionary perspective. Religious beliefs have no meaning or truth in reality outside of human minds. That reality is still inherently meaningless. But they have a concrete impact on human survival. They confer adaptive benefits, which promote cooperation, cohesion, and ultimately, survival. 
As a species, we evolved not to understand the world, but to survive. We do not perceive temperature as some absolute measure, like 42.2 degrees Celsius. We rather perceive it in relative terms, as in too hot, which raises the question, too hot for whom, as Pete Mandic puts it. And this reveals our inherently egocentric nature. We see the world as we need to see it, not necessarily as it is. We have believed in various gods because it was useful, not because it was true. In very, very recent human history, we engaged the project of science, of trying to understand the world and the universe and reality as it exists outside of human minds. And this involves an immense effort to overcome our evolutionary programming. We must no longer measure temperature through the reaction, ow, too hot, but instead using the impersonal description 42.2 degrees Celsius. It is probably impossible to fully delete the bias of human perception, but we must try as hard as possible to latch onto reality as it exists outside of human minds, sorting out the beliefs that are merely useful from those that are true. And we are still at the mercy of this evolutionary pressure to act and perceive and analyse in a way that is narrowly useful for the survival of Homo sapiens in the savannah. We carry this baggage in the form of sugar cravings and racial heuristics. Certain aspects of reality are incredibly hard to contemplate in the mind of Homo sapiens. Quantum mechanical behaviour at the level of electrons and alpha particles is completely counterintuitive. Micro-level particles break so many laws of macro-level physics. Simple things like cause and effect that we've evolved to expect in our macroscopic world. Understanding quantum mechanics is a huge hurdle for the human mind, since it impugns all of our evolutionary programming. But all we can do is look to the evidence and flatly admit, my intuitions are wrong, my senses are misleading. I must rely on the evidence and not on my programming. Religious beliefs are also a case of evidence contradicting programming. Our intuitions want the world to be a certain way. You know, there must be cause and effect at the level of electrons. There must be a heaven for human beings. But the evidence says otherwise. We might dwell with pessimism on our ability to ever fully understand these facts about fundamental reality, since our evolution was directed at such drastically different purposes. But instead, let's be grateful that we have a medium like science, which allows us to get above our programming. Let's practice some hashtag gratitude. There are reasons why human science is a reliable measure of reality, over and above our biological senses. And I discussed these reasons as far back as episode two, citing a paper by Pete Mandick and Andy Clark. There are many reasons, but I'll just mention two of them. First, the classifications of science are not bound by the classifications of our senses. 
chemistry tells us that glass and water are both liquids. And this points to the fact that scientific evidence can contradict the senses, and it's a better measure of what reality is really like. Our intuitions and our evolutionary programming are not equipped to tell us that glass and water are both liquids, or that this mug of water is 42.2 degrees Celsius. And second, we enjoy an open-ended use of technology. We investigate reality using far more than our original biological tools. So our ability to measure reality gets better and better over time. Calculators, microscopes, carbon dating, and particle accelerators. The capacities of our eyes and brains are capped, well, for the time being, at least. For the time being, they are not going to resolve images better or process information faster. But we are constantly improving the quality of our artificial tools. So the gap between what the body can detect and what scientific instruments can detect is growing ever larger. The bottom line here is, don't trust your senses, or at least, don't trust your senses over scientific evidence. We have not evolved to perceive the truth about the fabric of reality. But happily, we have been working on a few tools and methods which can do the job for us. It's easy to be swayed and misled by the stories that religions propagate. These stories are powerful. And from an evolutionary perspective, they've been highly useful and successful in allowing humans to cooperate and survive. But they are just stories. We must recognize their ontological status as narratives. We must ask the question, in what way do they exist? And then give the answer, inside human minds and human imaginations. Religious narratives exist intersubjectively within the shared frames of many human beings. And as stories go, they are by no means the best possible stories. I firmly believe that there are better stories, better narratives that we can tell to ourselves and to each other. Which brings us to the topic of morality. When it comes to religion and morality, the bottom line is I'm a believer in human rights, not religious rights, or especially not in religious rights that trump other human rights. My criticism of dogmatic religions generally is that they proliferate and propagate bad moral ideas. Sure, there are also good moral ideas, but there are also good moral ideas in many works of literature. There are many lessons to be learned from our favourite novels and songs, comparable insights, about the human condition. The Bible, the Quran, the Torah, each of these texts claims to be the ultimate source for good moral ideas. But equally, we can search for good moral ideas in other works of literature and art, in Hamlet, Harry Potter, or the music of Leonard Cohen. And that might seem like a low blow for any theist out there, but it's true. Cultural or moral truth can be achieved in all sorts of texts, and hitting the target sometimes doesn't excuse advocating bad moral ideas or dogmas. This distinction between scientific truth and mere cultural or moral truth is similar to the one I made back in episode 5, when I distinguished analytic philosophy and continental philosophy. 
The norm of scientific truth is pursued by analytic philosophy and science, and it seeks to describe what exists in objective reality outside of human minds. Whereas the norm of cultural or moral truth or cultural value, this is pursued by art, literature, music, and arguably continental philosophy. Each of these mediums seeks to capture or express some truth about human life or experience. And the best art is the most true to life, in that it nails something so deeply felt or experienced that it feels impossibly spiritual or moving. That is the value of a song or a novel or the Bible. They are important cultural artefacts if they capture some core truth about human experience. But when they don't, when a novel espouses racism, it gets cancelled. These cultural artefacts should only go as far as their cultural use or value. The Bible or the Quran or the Torah is not better or the best when it comes to capturing human experience or proliferating good moral ideas. There are other texts with other, more important cultural truths, more terrestrial truths about human rights. The human rights of gay people, for instance, cannot be trumped by the religious rights of certain people to speak and act in a bigoted way, based on some supernatural belief. And the same is true for women's rights. Religious beliefs often create this moral clash. You know, either we vindicate the human rights of women, very basic rights to speak or act or behave as they choose, and even less outlandish rights, like not to be subjected to violence, even sexual violence. Or we vindicate the religious rights of certain people in having true and honest convictions that women should not speak or act or behave as they choose, and that women may be subjected to violence, even sexual violence, on the basis of some supernatural belief. My stance is simply in favour of human rights. Women's rights, gay rights, trans rights, which should not and cannot be trumped by any supernatural claims which license subjugation, bigotry, hate and violence against these groups. Supporting human rights means opposing religious rights to persecute and to breach the human rights of others. I really don't intend to choose any specific religion as a target, only to vindicate human rights generally. These are maligned in many and various ways by many and various religious doctrines. That is my stance. And, of course, human rights are just another human narrative. In what way do they exist? Why, intersubjectively, of course. Human rights are a shared fiction and a shared story, just like the Euro or the Dutch economy or the Christian God. But arguably they have a more factual basis. They are premised on a biological fact about the human race that we are all members of the same genetic species. And then, by extrapolation, the same moral protection is afforded to all members of that species. Such an inference in moral reasoning has no absolute justification. As I mentioned in episode 1, I don't believe in objective moral rules. Rather, our moral norms arise contingently, relative to the conditions of our biology and the environment on Earth. So. There is no deductive proof for human rights. 
we cannot prove that they are more correct than the right to beat your children in the way that we can prove that the three angles and the triangle add up to 180 degrees. All we can do is contest the factual basis for extrapolation, humans as one genetic species, and insist that our moral reasoning is more cogent on the basis of concrete needs and practical outcomes in human suffering and flourishing. From a conceptual standpoint, it is incredibly hard to justify this type of moral reasoning. This is not a matter of applied ethics, ethics as it relates to specific problems. Instead, it's a matter of meta-ethics, justifying our overall scheme from a global position when we step back and zoom out. This problem with meta-ethics goes back to Hume's is-ought distinction and the naturalistic fallacy. And in my mind, it's one of the most difficult problems to overcome from a naturalistic perspective. At this moment, it's not worth getting into, since it will derail us too much. But I will say more about meta-ethics and the naturalistic fallacy next week. For now, let's take it that human rights don't have a deductive justification, like geometry does. But that they do have some contingent justification, based on the terrestrial conditions of Earth and the needs of human beings and our capacity for suffering or flourishing. I don't want to get dragged into the weeds with a debate about abortion, but it is one area where religious stories cause moral confusion. Thankfully, it is more rare now to find examples of religiously motivated homophobia or religiously motivated misogyny, at least in the societies I've lived in, in Europe, Canada and Australia. I know that elsewhere in the world this is not the case. But religious objections to abortion, pro-life, are much more common. At the very least, religious stories create apprehension and unease undermining confidence in the fact that women do have a right to abortion. When we step back and consider the moral protections from a scientific, naturalistic perspective, it seems implausible that an early-stage embryo made up of so few cells should be given equal moral protection. And it seems even more implausible that embryos should have rights that trump the rights of adult women. When we dispense with the spooky idea of souls and take the perspective of biology, psychology and neuroscience, the moral calculus presents a rather different assessment of human rights. Richard Dawkins makes a more controversial claim that the rights of an adult pig might rationally trump the rights of an early stage human embryo when you take into account the nervous system and capacity for flourishing and suffering. My position here is undecided, since these interspecies moral comparisons are very tricky, but it's certainly food for thought. Overall, the abortion issue is a prime example of how religious stories are confusing and misleading. This is a debate about biology, not about souls. Human rights are stories about earth, not about heaven. We must have a conversation about brains, nervous systems, social behaviour, empathy, kinship and mating. Human rights are terrestrial stories about one species of animal among many.
let's talk about other animals. How religion views other animals and how science views other animals. A small disclaimer, I don't eat animals or land animals and I only rarely eat fish. In fact, I haven't eaten a mammal or a land animal in over three years. I think this position is the one most supported by an honest and scientific appreciation of the facts of animal biology, their brains, their nervous systems, and also their social arrangements. And this flies in the face of religious doctrine. The central error that religion makes in its attitude towards animals, and it's a grievous intellectual crime, it's a belief in essentialism. Religion says that man is essentially different from all non-human animals. And notice my disdainful use of the gendered term man. Religion says that man has been chosen and this distinguishes man from all other species. Of course, this is not the case in some Eastern traditions where reincarnation includes other animals in God's plan. But it is the case with several major world religions. The book of Genesis gives humans dominion over all other species. Here I'm quoting from Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and over all the earth itself, and every creature that crawls upon it. This says that humans are essentially distinct from all other species, which is so misguided. It's wrong not only for moral reasons, as we'll see, but also for objective, scientific reasons. There is no evidence of such an essential divide within the animal kingdom. I opened episode 3 with this argument, that an essentialist view of humans as somehow separate is factually wrong. And it poses an insurmountable problem for religion. This is the old puzzle. Do dogs go to doggy heaven? Or do crows go to crowy heaven? If humans are chosen out from the rest, this flies in the face of our best theories from biology and philosophy and genetics. And I still see echoes of this book of Genesis mindset that humans rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over all the earth itself. We need to ditch the idea that humans are chosen in any way. And this means no heaven. Unless you also believe in doggy heaven and crowy heaven and mosquitoy heaven. To theists, uh, and here theist means believer in God, as opposed to atheist. To theists, there is nothing more ridiculous than the idea of mosquitoes going to heaven. And I think that proves the point that I'm trying to make. Until we ditch the idea of humans being chosen in some way, we're fucked. And I mean that in relation to animal rights and climate change. So it's time to construct a moral code that's informed by Earth and not by Heaven. Our behaviour will be all the more humanistic when we are guided only by terrestrial dictates. So, in brief, I have made two broad arguments against religion. First, that we can have a more accurate understanding of reality without religion. And second, that we can construct a better moral code without religion.
First objection. Not all religious people violate human rights or violate scientific claims. And this is certainly true. Of course, I know countless religious people, many within my own extended family, and I would never accuse them of these moral or intellectual transgressions. They don't subscribe to the more wacky claims about the age of the earth or the origin of the universe or the origin of life. But this highlights the fact that people are now picking and choosing from their religious scriptures. The holy texts themselves advocate these transgressions against human rights and against scientific claims. All this proves is that people are picking and choosing more than ever being selective about their beliefs, which only highlights another feature of the irrationality. If these religious texts are full of such monumental errors, errors not only about objective reality, but also about our ethical reality, whether or not these claims were accurate in ancient times when recorded, if there are errors which necessitate picking and choosing, this seems all the more reason to abandon the texts and the dogmas altogether. Have faith in terrestrial life and intellect. We can construct a far superior moral code, and we already have. We can impose a far more robust standard of inquiry to reach objective truths about the nature of reality. This empowers us, humanity, to take the reins and to take responsibility. If we are alone and unsupervised, then this empowers us to take responsibility for our moral acts. And when there are transgressions in human rights, when there are hateful or violent or bigoted acts against minority groups, then there is no excuse of supernatural license. There is no, God told me to do it, therefore you can't blame me. It is the fault of humans, and we are empowered to devise solutions. We are absolutely and essentially responsible for all moral norms, moral rules and ethical acts. They are the products of our collective imagination. All failures fall on our shoulders. All sins must be addressed and corrected by our terrestrial measures. No excuses, no second lives, no doggy heaven. A second objection. Is it hypocritical to restrict the rights of religious people? I have been rather firm throughout about my position on human rights and you might be quick to point to an apparent irony or hypocrisy. Religious rights, after all, are one species of human right. I have criticised anti-humanistic dogmas, but has this not been one long attack on the human rights of religious people? What about their right to profess and execute their true and honest convictions? Is it hypocritical to attack their human rights, all because they attack other human rights? In 2014, in Belfast, a bakery refused to bake a cake with the slogan Support Gay Marriage, because the bakery did not support gay marriage. Do bakeries and companies and citizens have the right to their own freedom of belief and expression? Or do customers have a right to be treated equally, without discrimination? How far do religious rights go? Well, Religious freedom and other freedoms must be the cornerstone of open democratic societies. The very rights that permit theistic beliefs also permit atheistic beliefs. And these rights allow for open and critical discourse. 
if we deny bakeries the right to profess and execute their beliefs, are we no better than the state of Louisiana, which wants to deny women the right to abortion? There will inevitably be a clash. There cannot be both the right to discriminate and the right to be free from discrimination. There cannot be both the right to life and the right to choice. So who wins? Why should our version of human rights be preferred? Well, we say human rights based on bodily autonomy and freedom from discrimination. And they say human rights based on protection for embryos and freedom to express beliefs. What's the difference? If we're ever going to solve this moral clash, we must point to some difference. The difference comes back to understanding reality. We must claim some basis for a difference, and this is the place to do it. We must point back to the entire structure and foundation of the moral system. When we're building a moral system, there are always constitutive, foundational elements underpinning that system. Religious systems and secular systems disagree fundamentally on how to conceive reality. If we argue back and forth on abortion, pro-life, pro-choice, he said, she said, or on religious expression, freedom to associate or freedom from discrimination, we get into a stalemate. There is no answer at that level of debate, since it's just one human right versus another. It's the customer versus the bakery, or the embryo versus the woman. To get a foothold in the debate, we have to zoom back to our competing pictures of reality. One picture must be preferred at the end of the day, and that will inform the basis for the moral code. I remember being 21 and watching an abortion debate at university. These were the years building up to the historic repeal of the Eighth Amendment in Ireland. And yes, this was very recent. It was a referendum in 2018 that finally permitted abortion under Irish law. By popular vote, we removed a clause that said that the unborn and the mother have an equal right to life. Watching this pre-referendum debate, I was struck by how the two sides were arguing at cross-purposes. One side said the mother has a right to choose, the other said the embryo has a right to live. Neither side drilled down to the root of the disagreement. These were two conflicting pictures of reality. The disagreement was, and is, unsolvable, because one side has an unshakable suspicion that human embryos have souls, and, therefore, they refuse to be persuaded. And, in one respect, I don't blame them. If I believed that human embryos have souls, then quite likely my position would be different. Luckily, I don't believe that human embryos have souls. But a debate about surface-level issues was never going to resolve a disagreement about fundamental assumptions, a disagreement about conflicting pictures of reality. I have already argued at length why the secular picture of reality is correct. Understanding reality requires a scientific, naturalistic outlook, and this reveals religion to be one species of human narrative, just like currencies, economies, and countries. This secular framework informs an entire moral system. You can't have the system without the foundation. When we take the scientific starting point and build a terrestrial moral code, 
there is no justification for discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. And there is no justification for why eight embryonic cells are afforded the same moral protection as an adult woman. So the next time you want to refute religious morality, don't aim for the castle. Aim for the foundations. It all comes back to understanding reality. And actually, that has been the main message of the Extrapolator podcast since episode one. In closing, can we say that God exists? Well, yes, actually. God exists in the same way as the Euro or the Dutch economy or the Republic of Ireland. The belief in God and the belief in the Euro are both intersubjective narratives, commonly held beliefs that are constructed in a shared frame of reference between many members of the human species. But these are intersubjective entities, not objective entities. Neither God nor the Euro exists out there, in reality outside of human minds. They are both evolutionary adaptations, fictions that we have engaged because they are useful and because they aided our survival. They are indeed useful, but not true. It is time to recognize that religions are just stories, and as stories go, they are outdated. Thankfully, mercifully, we now possess better stories, better narratives to aid our moral reasoning and our understanding of reality. This new system of science and naturalism paints a rather optimistic picture of the future. Our tools are constantly improving, and in principle, so too is our ability to understand reality. These insights, above all, will inform a more complete picture of reality and a more coherent moral code. Thanks for listening. This impromptu episode on religion was slightly longer than average in the end. If you're enjoying Extrapolator, please share it or leave a review online and please follow the podcast on Instagram at ExtrapolatorPod. Next week's episode will be the final one in this format, the final solo episode, for now at least. And I'm excited to move to a more conversational, interview-based model in future seasons of the podcast. The Extrapolator artwork was created by Hugh Allen, and the Extrapolator music was created by me. The soundtrack for this podcast has been published under the title Extrapolator, Original Podcast Soundtrack, and it's available on Spotify, Apple Music, Deezer, and all major platforms. You can find a reading list for this episode and the other episodes in this season on my blog at jeffallenwriting.wordpress.com.
I hope you'll join me next week for the season finale, if you will. And I do hope you will. I hope to round off these topics with a very far-reaching discussion about, well, what's the bloody point of existing as a human being? What meaning or value or purpose does existence hold, if any? You'll find that I have a rather optimistic view of life, even if I sometimes come across as a cynic. Life is incredibly improbable. Therefore, life, for you and I, is rather wonderful. So, until next time.